It's a new year of breakthroughs, discoveries, and advancements. We're kicking off 2021 with an important update. SWRI scientist Dr. Jonathan Bowman is on the front lines of life-saving COVID research, the latest on his team's work and what they've uncovered since our last discussion. That's next on this episode of Technology Today. We live with technology, science, engineering, and the results of innovative research every day. Now, let's understand it better. You're listening to the Technology Today podcast presented by Southwest Research Institute. Hello and welcome to Technology Today. I'm Lisa Fenya. We start the new year with new hope in the fight against the coronavirus pandemic. With the U.S. death toll climbing toward 400,000, effective prevention and treatment is a top priority for the nation's scientists and researchers. Already millions have received a COVID vaccine and there's been solid progress in finding treatments for patients already infected. SWRI staff scientist, Dr. Jonathan Bowman is leading a team screening drug compounds to find potential COVID therapies. We spoke to him in April, and he's back with an update on this developing topic. Thank you for joining us, Jonathan. Yes, I'm happy to be here. So I wanted to have you back because this research is really moving quickly. It seems every week there are new developments. So back in April, you had started the process of screening millions of drug compounds that could potentially fight COVID. What has developed since then? Sure. Uh, so... In that time, uh, we were able to uh, uh, select from those millions of compounds uh, uh, a subset uh, or part of those that we predicted to be safe. Uh, and so that, you know, the biggest thing, there's, there's probably lots of um, compounds that could be antivirals the only problem is that they might be also toxic so the margin of safety um you know the effective dose versus the um you know tolerable dose that that's an important thing so we we attempted to predict that on a subset of compounds and those were uh tested i think were into like well, we're into several hundred compounds, probably close to 700 compounds that were actually tested. And so of those, um, we had uh, 40 or 50 that were very uh, functional inhibitors uh, in vitro. That means uh, in, a, in cells that were grown and then infected with, uh, these are human cells, grown and infected with uh, the virus. So we were able to demonstrate that these compounds uh, were able to stop the replication of the virus. And so, like I said, the, there are several compounds that do that, but the most important thing is um, what is that, the, the amount of drug that's required to inhibit the virus versus the amount of drug that would uh, cause adverse effects. And so that's a safety ratio. Usually uh, you start out with a value of maybe 10, uh, 20 is great. But we do have a couple of compounds uh, that are, one of them is a safety factor of 200. The other one's a safety factor of 400. So that's a really amazing result. We've found a good path. We've had a great tool in rhodium and, uh, 
and actually things have gone as expected. So right. you started with millions of compounds. You right. broke that down to about 700 that were kind of the top ones you wanted to look at closer. From there, that list uh, got even smaller to about 40 or 50. And from there, from what I understand, you started safety testing. And so now you're really um, getting into the weeds here with really finding uh, that exact treatment that is going to be the key, hopefully, to right. um, attacking the virus. So right. there's, um, and you know, you did mention safety ratings, and you mentioned that 200 to 400 was good. Can you kind of clarify what that scale is of oh, safety sure. ratings? What is the what yeah. is the area you want to you want to get to? Right. So that's a safety factor that's done from the bioassays that we're doing, and so um, every drug has an amount or a concentration uh, when it's administered that, you know, is not effective. Um, and then as you increase the concentration, then it starts to become effective. And then if you increase that concentration too much, you might kill the cells with toxicity. So the safety factor is how much greater is the toxic concentration than the effective concentration. So you have to have a margin of safety. So if you need to escalate the dose, you find out that later, maybe you need a higher dose for being effective in an animal, which is a living, breathing system rather than cells. So you need a wide safety margin. And so that safety margin is the ratio of those concentrations. So in other words, uh, if I have a treatment regimen at you know, some dose, but if I double the dose and it's toxic, that's a safety factor of two, right? Uh, if I have a treatment a regimen and I uh, and it's uh, uh, you know works fine, and I don't have any toxic effects until I increase the concentration by a factor of ten, that's even better. So that's a safety factor of ten. Where we are right now is super important because we're at a predicted safety factor of 200, which is super uh, important for antivirals um, because usually the doses end up being larger than you think. And that's so you can catch up with a viral infection that's just exploding inside of your body. So, so larger doses are typically required for anti-infectives compared to normal treatments, uh, I would say normal treatments. There's, I don't think there's a normal treatment, but ones you might find like um, uh, uh, cancer therapeutics, or, you know, or even, um, you know, heart medications, um, anti-coagulants. Uh, so the higher the number, the better it is because you can yes, increase right. the dosage and know that they're yeah, know that they're safe should the um, condition require higher dosing. So, got it. How would you kind of sum up what you've done in less than a year? Well, we've gone from, uh, in, in that year's time, uh, not even knowing a whole lot about the virus other than the biochemical structure of this one protein. Uh, we started before people even had a full structure of the spike protein. So 
Um, so we started that, uh, the compounds that we had, we got through the screening of 40 million compounds in less than a month. Uh, that screening actually took less time than the actual biochemical screening that we did later. And we expected that because with the biochemical screening, you have to set up the laboratory. There's lots of people involved. Um, you know, there's uh, biosafety considerations. You have to test and validate the assay before you can do any of the testing. Um, I mean, so you have to ensure that the assay is doing what you think. So all that was being brought up while we were doing doing the virtual screening, and and it took a little bit longer, but it took a little bit longer for everyone because of the you know it's it's doing the laboratory work. Um, so anyway, uh, that the first round of laboratory work was done in August, and that's where we found an initial set of hits. Then as uh, it took a while to get our compounds and material supply in, and that took another few months because we, the library of compounds that we screened was a virtual library. We ordered those compounds we predicted to be safe, um, and that to just obtain that material supply took a while. So by, um, through August and September, uh, that was being done. And finally, we did a lot of assay work uh, in a very short amount of time. Once everything was aligned, that was in October. And so October, November, and December is when we've done our refinement to this, uh, um, to the current uh, um, compound. We'll call that a, you know, a strong hit compound, um, and uh, it was not, it's not an intilico hit, it's an actual candidate to carry forward into uh, animals. But uh, that that's what's been going on. Um, it, you know, just the reality of lab work is it just takes a while, but the, you know, but it was good because we had in place our candidates um, and had we not had the rhodium tool, uh, we wouldn't have known where to start uh, with those 800 compounds. So we wouldn't have the a list rhodium. of 800 compounds as candidates. You know, we would have been yeah, so who knows what. Yeah. Yeah, rhodium has been um, the key here. And I want to get to that in a moment because, you know, we did talk about that back in April, but I want to kind of um, help our audience remember what exactly rhodium is. But I do have some questions about the, the compounds, these strong hits and candidates that you're seeing. Is it just one compound that's really standing out right now or are there a couple? Is, well, or there's is it just a couple. The I mean, they are, these all happen to be very structurally related compounds. So you could call that the lead compound and the others are members of a family. So you've already tested it in cells. You will um, now move on to a living, breathing system, animals. Right. Um, and so how long does that process take and how long do you think it will um, be until uh, you nail down an exact treatment? Right. So for, for um, use in people. Yeah. Well. What has to happen is um, beyond that, uh, we have to demonstrate safety and efficacy in an, in a, um, 
we call it a, a proof of concept study in a small animal, typically a rodent. And then, and then there has to be a uh, study in primates. And so that's kind of beyond what Southwest Research does. And that, so that's where our partners kind of have to take the lead on that. Although we'll be involved in that program, the, the computational work, the, you know, the, obviously the rhodium part of that ends. And then that, the length of time required for that, it's, it's I, I really don't want to <laughs> make a claim that yeah. we can't yeah. back up because that involves uh, that'll involve much more deeply uh, uh, the other institutions that are involved. I mean, everyone is is accelerating this program, and I will say that the protocols and so forth for doing that work have been. It takes a while to get that set up. So, in anticipation of that, uh, we have been preparing uh, the plans for those animal tests even before we had the compound selected. Um, so we started doing that planning back in August. That gives you an idea of the lead time required. Um, so, so you even bring though up we a good didn't point. have a candidate, we had to have the plans in place for those studies. Yeah, so you do bring up a good point. We do not do animal testing at Southwest Research no, Institute. No, we do not. So you yeah. You will be working with um, partners on that side of things. And that is something that is that just um, a normal part of um, of getting a drug approved going through these types of um, tests? Oh, is yeah. That, is that sure. General and, uh, process. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's getting uh, demonstrating that this is safe in a living, breathing system. Uh, and, and so then. You, you never, uh, the thing for, the important thing before, um, you know, you can uh, do a, uh, you, you know, get an emergency use, use authorization um, from the FDA, which is how the vaccines are being rolled out, right? In the sense they're not approved, they are, as far as I understand, these are all uh, being used under an authorization for emergency use. So there's there's a little bit of a nuance there. But for emergency use authorization, you still have to show that there's safety there. And that's what's been done. So with these vaccines, they've been shown to be efficacious in an animal, probably a primate. And they've been shown to be safe in some safety trials, which is what you've heard about. And so as a result of doing the safety, they went ahead and just tracked whether people got infected or not. But uh, in this case, what we have to do is show that this will likely work in, an, in, a, in a, a non-human primate. And then the safety still has to be done in human subjects. You know, you, you are talking about the vaccine because the process is similar to what you will have to yes, accomplish. Yes, Right. That's so. exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's too early, obviously, to, as you know, nail down an exact um, timeline for um, rolling this out. And um, But are you able to, at this point, identify how your um, standout compound might work in the body? 
how it would attack the virus and also um, any sort of, um, are you able to gauge right now how soon after infection uh, treatment would be needed uh, to be administered to be effective? Right, and that's the biggest deal. And so that's why the safety, I don't know yet, but that's why the safety factor is so important with antivirals because the longer you wait, the higher the dose has to be right after infection. So, you know, if, if you, so let's say with Tamiflu, I mean, the dose is fixed, right? And that dose only works, um, at, you know, oh, yeah, a couple days a, within a certain amount symptoms. of time. Yeah. And beyond that, it's too late. And, you know, there's, there's not different doses of Tamiflu, there's one dose. Well, one thing is if the safety factor is high enough, it might be possible to, it wouldn't happen right away, but to have the thing approved for a range of dosing, just like you see with uh, cholesterol medication or so forth, you know, they there's a range of dosing that's available depending on the, you know, biological requirements. And so the thinking is, you know, preliminarily that this is a viral replication inhibitor. So that's what this main protease is part of the viral replication. It doesn't block virus entry like an antibody, but it it shuts down viral replication. So um, the the good news is, you know, I guess compared to a vaccine, a vaccine only works for that recognition part if you miss that window, then a vaccine doesn't necessarily do as much good, and there's probably not a lot of room. You can't go back and get a larger dose or anything like that. With a treatment like this, the thinking is with a safety factor high enough, you would increase your uh, time to treatment. And there is a, that is a parameter, which is, you know, uh, how far after, how long after the initial infection can you treat? So that's... Uh, time to treatment. And that's, that actually is one of the, the tests that you do within an efficacy trial. And you know, that's probably what it, I don't know when that trial will happen. Again, that's the animal work that we don't do at Southwest Research, but um, that would be part of it, would be a time to find the dose that's, you know, toxic, <laughs> but um, can be used to extend you know, that treatment window to the, you know, the longest possible. And then there's obviously some limit, right? You know, we are hearing about this new aggressive strain of the virus. Um, What can you tell us about this new strain? It was first found in the UK, but now it's here in the United States. Are you studying it and does it change your research in any way? Right. And so, you know, the, the, um, the main, uh, you, you know, um, Kind of the in our partner uh, in our um, group of partners, you know the folks that are really close uh, on the front lines and of the actual you know medical what happens out in the field. Uh, 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 Walter Reed is you know has the best eye on on all this stuff, and and the the uh, information I'm getting from them is that uh, you know, to the best of our knowledge, there, there's 
there's more than one variant. There's probably you're going to hear uh, reports probably in the coming weeks of of uh, you know variants emerging. That's just natural selection. That the uh, over time, uh, what you find are uh, viruses that spread more easily and are are less lethal, right? So they become wider diluted in the in the population. So the the longer that the virus spreads, you know, you'll have these variants emerge that will just because of a mutation, they'll just take over, right? They'll just be more effective and the other variants won't catch up. But usually that means that the symptoms uh, or the biological consequences uh, um, are typically uh, better, I mean, in terms of, you know, the yeah, uh, less, less risk of lethal. death and so forth. Yeah, they, and they get more widely spread, like, I'm not going to say coronavirus will be the common cold, but you know, things generally go in that direction, right? The most widely dispersed viruses are not lethal viruses by what we would think of as a biohazard situation. So, so you know, less lethality, but more in, more infectivity. So, just to recap, though, what you said generally. Um, when viruses mutate, they become less dangerous. So that's, you know, the, the thought is coronavirus, the COVID-19 will follow this same and that's pathway. What, so, yeah, and that's what makes them more, I mean, so the mutation, the virus doesn't think or do I mean, anything other than replicate. I mean, it's barely alive because it can't replicate by itself. Um, but yeah, exactly. Just the ones that you're going to see more often are the ones that are more infectious, right? Um, so yeah, and the ones where there are fewer symptoms, you know, people are not going to people are going to spread the ones that show fewer symptoms, right? Or less severity so, in symptoms. So do these so mutations? Yeah. Okay, so do these mutations do these mutations change your research in it anyway? Oh, okay. Well, that no, and this is the good news it, it, is that those mutations, the ones that we know about, are on the spike protein, which controls viral recognition uh, of the host cells, and ours uh, our target um, is in the life cycle in in um, replication within the cell. So after the, a cell has been infected with the virus, then the virus multiplies. That's replication. And our treatment uh, would interfere with the replication, not the recognition. And so the changes that are being observed are in the recognition uh, domains of these like protein, mainly. So you've mentioned Walter Reed several times. Um, are who else are you collaborating with uh, um, yes, to move this project uh, US, forward? Yeah, U.S. Amrit Army Institute for Infectious Disease, and then uh, Texas Biomedical Research Institute (TBRI). Okay, so um, these institutions working together to 
nail down a therapy that will essentially um, stop the virus from replicating and stop people from getting terribly ill and hopefully um, stop the uh, increase in deaths we've been seeing. So is that the, is that the main right. goal, obviously, here? Saving lives. That's exactly right. So the key, as we talked about, um, is rhodium. This is where it all started with us at Southwest Research Institute. And we did talk about rhodium last time, but I think it's definitely worth covering again. This is a software and it's really the key to your screening process. Can you go over um, what rhodium is and what it does? Sure. So uh, rhodium is a tool for virtual screening. Uh, and what it can do is it can find uh, drugs that are likely to fit into the surface of a protein. Uh, and when those drugs fit into the surface of the protein, the, the um, biological process um, that's involved, that, that protein uh, participates in would be altered. In our case, we want the um, process to be inhibited. So uh, what Rhodium uses is a three-dimensional model of, in this case, part of the virus, and this part of the virus is called the main protease, but you actually have a three-dimensional model of it, and uh, that, that has uh, certain locations on the surface. The surface is kind of like a terrain, and there are peaks and valleys, and some of the valleys are at important functional sites. Those are called active sites. And what this drug can do is block these active sites. Or uh, sometimes the um, biological process in general needs two proteins to come together, and that creates a biological signal. And one of the things we can do with rhodium is find drugs that would interfere with that process. So uh, what rhodium can do is take three-dimensional models of those target proteins and find um, maybe from lists of millions of drugs, uh, drugs that would bind to those um, parts of the protein to alter the biological process. So that's and it does what rhodium does. Quickly. Yeah, it's fast. Yeah, it's very huh? quickly and fast. And, uh, you know, so um, on certain types of problems, it can be, you know, 250,000 compounds a day for virtual screening. In this uh, project, we were able to access some of the DOD supercomputers, and we were able to do uh, several million uh, compounds a day. In fact, we were able to screen a 40 million compound library in uh, quite a short amount of time. So, um, yes, it's very, very fast. So, um, as the vaccine becomes more widespread and more people receive it, will that slowly eliminate the need for a drug therapy? Or will a treatment be something needed for years to come? We're going to be with coronaviruses for a long time. I mean, I'm, they're, they're not go they've been around. They're not going away. Uh, so there's always going to be a need for a treatment. A vaccine's not going to work for everybody. Um, you know, you've already seen that there are limitations on, um, you know, um, 
just variations in uh, immune response to a vaccine and uh, variations in tolerability for a vaccine. Uh, these all, I mean, there's some limit to what a vaccine can do. A vaccine will not be able to do uh, to keep everyone safe and to prevent infections in the future. So there's always a need for uh, therapeutic tools uh, for uh, infections. How do you describe this moment of your career? Is this the biggest research initiative of your life? I, you know, in terms of the, um, yeah, I, I, it's the biggest team of my life. So I guess that makes it the biggest initiative <laughs> in a sense. Yeah. And to bring so many people together, uh, you know, with a common, um, purpose and, and, um, you know, uh, and, um, moving forward, that it's the biggest team I've been involved with. I think in terms of impact, I mean, the impact is obvious. It's, it's so clear. I mean, sometimes when you're doing a research project, you you see a small part of it. But here I was able to, and, and M, you know, participate in in the in the whole thing. We were doing this. Uh, yeah. So to wrap up, you know, so many have lost so much due to the pandemic, loved ones, livelihoods, their stability. And I've asked you this question before, and I think it's a great time to ask again all these months later. As a scientist on the front lines of this battle, what words of encouragement do you have for our listeners hit the hardest by this virus? We are, you know, there's, um, we think about these issues uh, also, and, you know, all of us that are involved in the research are, you know, are, have been personally impacted um, in their own lives. Um, you know, we were talking in our project meetings, you know, at just friendly banter about people's own bubbles and, you know, not so often, not really in a, in a scientific meeting, but I'm sure there's people that have had their families affected. I and mean, that's on everyone's mind. I'm sure of it. Uh, the, 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 we're, we're all being affected by this and, you know, um, no, normally uh, I think in a project, the telltale sign is, you know, you say, all right, we're looking at this project schedule. When should we do this? When should we do this? And the answer is always right now, right now, right now. We don't, you don't see that all in every program. So, you know, it, the sense of urgency is there. I mean, it's, you know, should we do this activity now? Well, yes, we should. There's no better time that is encouraging because it shows us that uh, this is of top importance and the science is really rallying behind um, th this research to find a cure, find a treatment, and find an end to this pandemic that's right. abruptly right. changed our lives. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for this important update today. And really thank you and your team for the work that you're doing. This work has the potential to help and heal so many people. So much great information today. Again, offering hope that serious illness due to COVID can one day and will one day be prevented. 
So I look forward to following up with you again soon. Yes. Thank you. And that wraps up this episode of Technology Today. You can hear all of our episodes and see photos and complete transcripts at podcast.swri.org. Remember to share our podcast and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Want to see what else we're up to? Connect with Southwest Research Institute on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Check out the Technology Today magazine at technologytoday.swri.org. And now is a great time to become an SWRI problem solver. Visit our career page at swri.jobs. Ian McKinney and Brian Ortiz are the podcast audio engineers and editors. I am producer and host, Lisa Benya. Thanks for listening.